Now take your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Today we'll be reading and studying together in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning to read in verse 26. We are, as I have read from the commentators that I have been studying this week, and the various pastors and scholars, we are in this passage coming upon the very heart of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ nailed to a cross, his life given up for the sake of sinners who did not deserve his sacrifice. We come now, uh, in a sense, to hallowed ground. All the gospels are hallowed ground, and all of uh, God's word is true and right and for his people to teach us how to walk with him. We get the sense as we come to a passage like this that, uh, that, uh, that this is a place that we need to pay particular attention to hear, again, the gospel message that I know that so many of us have heard over and over and over again, and yet to hear again as the Lord uh, has designed that we should come week after week to hear again the message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together before we read in Luke chapter 23 that the Lord would enable us to do just that, to have hearts that are attentive to hear this word and to rejoice in Christ our Savior. Please join me again in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would again open our eyes. Give us hearts to believe. We pray uh, for the young ones among us who may not have heard the gospel as often as we have, who may not have come to the place where they are yet uh, ready to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be with them. Be with fathers and mothers as they speak to children after the service today. Help your word to sink down deep into our hearts that we would be able to speak to it, uh, speak of it to one another. Help us to rejoice in the Savior that we see. Help us to know him and trust him. Help us to find life by his name, even through your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read together now Luke chapter 23, beginning to read in verse 26, and reading to the end of verse 43. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. They laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, 
were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I was in college when Mel Gibson's movie came out, The Passion of the Christ. If you've never seen it, I don't recommend that you do. And if you have seen it, you know already why there was such a controversy over the R rating that it received. In blockbuster style, high Hollywood fashion, the movie attempted even just a little bit to depict some of the gore, some of the suffering that was entailed in a first century crucifixion. The movie was two hours of sweat and blood and bone and violence. I I attended a showing of the film together with a group from the church that we were attending at the time, and particularly during some of the scenes of the scourging and of the hanging, many people applied the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He became as one from whom we hide our faces. It was too much to watch. When we consider these things, the the movies that have been made, the artwork that has created 2,000 years of, of Western civilization and Christian art, very often it is a direct contrast with the quiet reserve with which the Gospels record the death of Jesus. Verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Matthew and and Mark and John all follow a, a similar pattern, and very often the Gospels are the ones that are whispering the crucifixion while Hollywood would, would like to shout it. And that's because in the Gospels, the focus of the death of Jesus is not on how it looked, but on what it meant. Not so much on what Jesus suffered as so much as what Jesus accomplished. That's particularly true here in Luke where we see that every word that comes from Jesus' mouth, both on the way to the cross and on the cross, every word of our Savior is directed at those around Him. What the cross means for them, not for him, not what he's suffering, but what it meant for them, even as they mourned over him, even as they mocked him, even as he was made a byword and a reproach among the people. Jesus, our Savior, spoke the peace of his crucifixion even while he endured it. Today, as we look at this passage, we're going to pay special attention to the words of Jesus. We're going to be reminded that at the cross, Christ refused to save himself so that he could save us instead. The first word that Jesus speaks in this passage, the first word we hear is a word of repentance. A word of repentance. Now, despite all the decorum of the Gospels, we get the sense that Jesus must have been a pitiful sight on his way to the place of execution. 
All of the Gospels teach us, uh, all the synoptic Gospels teach us, that Simon of Cyrene was plucked from this crowd of onlookers to carry what was probably just the top portion, just the crossbeam after Jesus. None of the Gospels tells us why Simon was chosen, why anyone needed to be chosen, because it was, uh, it was Roman policy that the crucified man would go out carrying his own crossbeam, and they would pick the longest possible route through the city and outside of the city to the place of execution so that people could see him, so that they could be horrified at what was about to happen. The condemned man always carried his own crossbeam, and so we don't know why, but we're left to put the pieces together to understand perhaps for ourselves that, that maybe Jesus was on the verge of collapse. That after a, a night of, of sleepless prayer and beatings and trials and floggings, there was a danger that perhaps Jesus could have died of exhaustion on the way to Calvary and then the entire spectacle would be lost. He must have been a pitiful sight. And among the crowds, there were women who took pity on him. Weeping women. Mourning and crying out loud as only Middle Eastern women can do. They were devout women. They were compassionate women. They may well have been part of the same group that offered wine mixed with myrrh as an act of charity to a dying man to, to dull his senses. In the other Gospels, Jesus refuses their charity, and here in Luke, Jesus refuses their pity. Verse 28, turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves, weep for your children. And then Jesus, as he is approaching the very pinnacle of his own suffering, preaches the final prophecy of his earthly ministry. There is a day of recompense coming, he says. It's a word that echoed the lamentation that he made when he entered Jerusalem not yet a week prior on Palm Sunday. It is a word, an alarm, that foretells the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming in yes, less than a generation after Good Friday. This day of recompense, a day of destruction so severe that he says, blessings will be counted as though they were curses. A day of judgment such that barrenness will be preferred to children. A day where empty wombs and dry breasts will be preferred to houses full of children and babies bouncing on the knee. Because if you were barren, if you had no children, at least then you would not have to watch them suffer along with you. The severe mercy of, of barrenness. He speaks to these Weeping crowds in language that feels ripped from the pages of the minor prophets. There's destruction coming in the shape of the day of the Lord. A day of gloom and a day of darkness without light, without hope, without deliverance. A day when, quoting Hosea chapter 10, the people will call on the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them up. Not so that they might escape, of course. If the mountains and the hills fall on you, you're not escaping, but so that they might be annihilated because annihilation would be preferable to the suffering they're about to endure. It's a wake-up call. 
It was a confrontation with their short-sighted mourning. Jesus is telling these women that if they can watch him driven out of the city and taken to the place of execution, and the most pitiful thing they can see in that scene is a man going to his earthly fate, they have not considered what the cross is all about. The moment that they're seeing is about the unavoidable consequences of either receiving or rejecting the Son of God who's come into the world. That's why Jesus wept as he did when he came into Jerusalem. He lamented that there was coming a day when Israel's enemies would tear Jerusalem down to the ground, both her and her children within her. There was a day coming where they would not leave one stone upon another in her because she did not know the time of her visitation. There is a direct correlation. The judgment was going to come upon Jerusalem for refusing to receive the Savior, for refusing to be gathered to him in faith and repentance. And so Jesus is telling them now, don't miss the significance of this moment. The saddest the most pitiful thing about the cross is not the pain that Jesus suffered. The most pitiful thing about the cross is the sin that so many refuse to forsake in order to come to him and find life. Suppose there's a sense in which Jesus probably didn't have to say anything at all. One commentator points out that this is now the seventh time in Luke's gospel alone that Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Why now? Why on his way outside of the city? Why didn't Jesus decide that it was old news by now if they hadn't heard the drum that he's been beating so long and so consistently? If nobody's listening listening by now, it must be time simply to stop playing. but it was his act of charity, his mercy upon these women, devout women, thoughtful women affected by human suffering, yet they didn't see the sin of rejecting Jesus and the judgment that follows. And so Jesus spoke a word of repentance. He speaks that same word to you as we encounter him here on the way to the cross, the the fall of Jerusalem was a cataclysm the likes of which most of us can't even begin to calculate. And yet it was a drop in a bucket, a, a drop in an ocean, as it were. It was a prelude to a far greater day of the Lord. It is a foreshadowing of another judgment. It points to the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Though you may have heard it already before, Jesus speaks a word of repentance to you again as you approach the crucifixion in this passage. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. It's a word of repentance. Secondly, Jesus spoke a word of forgiveness. Verses 33 and 34, when they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
That's a word that ought to melt the heart of every true Christian. It immediately exposes every selfish grudge that we prefer to nurse. It immediately exposes all those self-important ways that we bristle at being wrong-treated. How sinfully seldom we exhibit the heart of Jesus toward those who have wronged us. There they crucified Him, and He prayed, Father, forgive them. And then almost to to highlight this prayer by a contrast, Luke immediately puts it against this dark backdrop of the scorn that is coming from everybody who surrounds Jesus. It came from different mouths. It came from Jews. It came from Gentiles. They came in different forms, but it all followed the same dark logic. The premise was that the Savior of the world ought to be strong enough to save himself from death upon a cross. And then based on that premise, the inference was, if Jesus does not save himself from a death upon the cross, that is proof positive that he is not the Savior of the world. The Jews and the Romans understood it in different terms, but they all threw the same barbs at Jesus. They all mocked him and, and challenged him to display his power and his glory by putting an end to his own suffering. You notice the common theme in all of it. The rulers, the the religious leaders spoke among themselves about Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God. The soldiers spoke directly to his face. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even the criminal next to him joined the party. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us too while you're at it. You see, the Jews could not imagine a crucified Christ, and the Romans had no category for a conquered king, and so they all entertained themselves by heaping insults upon Christ on the cross because they couldn't conceive of any kind of salvation that could come from nail-pierced hands. Luke has not recorded this in an unintentional order of events. There they crucified him, And then he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a connection here. There's a greater logic here than the logic that was hurled against him. Christ's cry for forgiveness is connected directly to the hands that chose to remain fastened to the tree. And the prayer he offered is a prayer that reveals the very purpose of the cross. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 13, You who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by. How does God forgive all of our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Actually, there's a salvation that can only come from nail-pierced hands. Had Jesus called upon the Father to send those 12 legions of angels, had he, had he asked the Father to bring him down from the cross, he would have been giving CPR. He would have been breathing life into the guilt and sin that he went there to kill. And so it was only by Jesus staying there in our place that his prayer has any meaning at all. It's only by his death on our behalf that anybody can be reconciled 
to the Father. It's only because Christ was made our sin that we can become God's righteousness. It's only by Christ suffering death for us that we can receive life from Him. And the gift of forgiveness can only be received from suffering hands that stayed. And so that means that Jesus' word of forgiveness is not some throwaway prayer. It's not something that just sounds warm and pious. For some well-known religious leader to, to say on the cross so that others will think nice things of him. That he died as an innocent martyr. It doesn't only have to do with him. It's a single sentence sermon on why Jesus was at the cross at all. It was also a request that the Father was pleased to grant. Ever wondered about that? Jesus prays for the people who are crucifying him to be forgiven because they don't know what they're doing. Have you ever wondered if the Lord answered that prayer of Jesus? Now Peter in Acts chapter 3 preaches a sermon outside of the temple in Solomon's portico. And there he revealed to the Jews what Jesus says here they did not know they were doing. Peter said, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. That's what they did, that they, they didn't realize. And so Peter goes on. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Many of them did. Luke tells us on that very day another 2,000 souls found forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And the Lord answered the prayer of his son. This is still a word that Jesus speaks on behalf of his people. It's still a prayer that Jesus prays. He's the one who stayed on the cross, who died and rose again, and now he's the one who always lives to make intercession for the saints. That means, Christian, when you fail again and again in sin, when you fall into the temptation that you ought to have avoided, the Savior who stayed is the one who becomes your advocate with the Father. He's the one who prays on your behalf, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they belong to me. Forgive them because their debt is paid. Forgive them because I did not save myself. And so at the cross, Jesus spoke a word of forgiveness. And finally, at the cross, Jesus spoke a word of promise. It happened sometime between 9 a.m. and noon. It happened somewhere between the first driven nail and the broken legs that would squeeze the grip of suffocation. It happened somewhere in the middle, suspended between earth and heaven on a cross of rough-hewn beams. It happened that a sinner was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know what the Lord used to convince him to change his mind. Most likely it was the front row seat that he had to the entire spectacle that day. We don't know that, that perhaps in his dungeon cell he overheard Pilate declare Jesus threefold innocence. 
We don't know how close he was to Jesus as they all walked outside of Jerusalem, whether he heard Jesus speaking that word of repentance to those mourning women, turning his attention not on what he was suffering, but on what others were about to suffer. We don't know what compassion he saw in Jesus. We don't know if perhaps this man and his, uh, his outlaw cohort were, were spewing vitriol and hatred and curses at the Romans who nailed them to their own crosses, and then perhaps were, were mystified at this prayer for forgiveness that Jesus uttered. We don't know what it was that the Lord used, but whatever individual glimpses made the greatest impression on him, the final result is clear that the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of one of the men who was crucified with Jesus. We know that he didn't begin that day as a Christian. Not because of the crimes that he committed, because Christians can commit crimes as well. We know he didn't begin that day as a Christian because the other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, tell us that both of the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled Christ. Luke is not giving us a contradiction here. He is giving us the rest of the story. He's telling us what happened at some point after the reviling began and and after the Lord changed this man's heart, his eyes were opened. He found new life. And in just a few short statements, this man demonstrates by his words all the fruits of new life that grow in the heart of a born-again believer. Look at his words again. While one criminal railed, the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see it there. Humility enough to confess his sin. And grace enough to believe Jesus' innocence. And faith enough to call out for mercy. It's not the sinner's prayer like you've seen it before, probably. I imagine that this man could not have uh, confessed or professed the five vows of membership in the Presbyterian Church in America. But he prayed by faith rather than sight. According to outward appearance, he saw in Jesus the same thing that everybody else saw in Jesus. A human body, bruised and bloodied and broken and hanging there on a cross, underneath a placard that announced him as a rival to Caesar... A failed revolutionary, perhaps. But according to faith, he saw Christ by the Spirit. He believed that death was not the end for Jesus, and he believed that death was not the end for himself. Perhaps he read and believed the witness of an unlikely evangelist. It was Pilate who ordered that placard hung above Jesus' head. It was Pilate that had the words written there, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate wasn't trying to convert anyone. It was revenge against the Jewish leadership. He was sticking it to them. He was twisting the knife as they all went out, asserting his, his dominance, but the words were there, and the man saw it, perhaps, and, but in the hands of the Holy Spirit, they became the truth that he needed to believe, and so he prayed, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. It was a prayer like Joseph asking the cupbearer from the bottom of the Egyptian dungeon. 
like Joseph begging mercy from one who would soon return to his place beside the throne. It was like Joseph asking help from the one who could speak favor and freedom in the ears of a sovereign. This man knew that he had nothing to offer. He had not a single chip to bargain with. His clothes had been taken just like Jesus' clothes had been taken and raffled off to whatever soldier got the best pieces. Every last scrap of, of dignity and piety that he could have claimed, any earthly possession he had, all of his deeds now falling upon him in this moment of his own judgment, he realizes that he has no reason to be remembered, and yet he asks Jesus to remember him. If only he could be remembered and forgiven. And you know the immortal answer that the criminal received. Because you remember that Joseph asked and was forgotten. This man prayed and received a promise greater than he could have imagined. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is one of those words that we only fool ourselves into thinking that we understand. We can't begin uh, to grasp it. The, the word shows up two more times in the New Testament to speak of heaven. It shows up once in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about a vision he received. He was caught up in the spirit, up into the highest heavens, into paradise where he saw things that no eye has seen, no, no mouth can utter, no heart that would believe the things that God has prepared for those who love him things that he wasn't even able to tell the church. He saw them in paradise. It's used again in Revelation, and the passage that speaks of the garden and the presence of God where the tree of life brings health to the nations. It is at best a metaphorical reach and a grave overstep to think that paradise can be reduced to this garden of plenty that we have in our minds a place where all of our wildest dreams are fulfilled, where every sensual pleasure, everything we can imagine eating and drinking and breathing and feeling will come into its fullness. What a small, pale resemblance of what it must actually be. Thomas Aquinas said that God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of reason. Westminster Confession says that after death, the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. But how do you explain that? In a moment, it's one dying on a cross. How do you explain it? What do you say? How, how, do you, how do you put it in a capsule so it can be swallowed by anyone in their right mind? You know, in, uh, in March of 1986, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a peer-reviewed scientific study of the cause of death of Jesus on the cross. They took all of the evidence, everything that... Uh, that we know from the Gospels and some extra archaeological evidence, and they put together this study to explain with detailed drawings and, uh, and, and footnotes how exactly it was that somebody died on a Roman crucifixion. One of the things that I never knew, maybe you never knew before about crucifixion, is that when you breathe in normally, inhalation is where you exert energy, 
and exhalation is passive, you relax to exhale. Well, on a cross, that's inverted. Because of the way that the body hangs and the way that uh, the muscles are strained, actually it opens the lungs so that inhalation is more passive and exhalation comes only at great effort. It's the exhalation where the crucified criminal had to strain against the nails pushed through their metatarsals and the nails in their wrist and scrape their bloodied back against the upright beam of the cross. The exhalation was the most terrific part of the pain of crucifixion. The exhalation is what you need to speak a word of promise to anyone else around you. Why didn't Jesus just let him hang there in silence? pulled himself up. The pain was not what he was worried about. He spoke a word of promise to this man. Oh, Lord Jesus, remember me. Today, today you'll be with me. Today we'll be in paradise. And we spent this passage looking at, at the words of Christ to sinners, but notice also the words of sinners to Christ. As the Lord approached the crucifixion, some spoke words of pity and mourning. As Jesus hung on the cross, others spoke words of scorn and mocking. Only one spoke a prayer for mercy. Only one cried out to be remembered, even though he had no reason to deserve to be. And to that one alone, Jesus spoke a word of promise still speaks the word of promise to you. To all who cry to him, it's what he accomplished on the cross, forgiveness for all who trust in him, remembrance for sinners in his kingdom. If you have believed in Christ and confessed with the criminal, Jesus speaks the word of promise to you as well. It may not happen today, though it might. It may not be tomorrow. But whenever it is that the redeemed close their eyes for the last time in sleep, they will awake to a paradise with their Savior. It's a word of promise that we receive. It's why he came. It's why he stayed. It's why he refused to save himself in order that he might save his people. Please join me together in prayer. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you for the words of Jesus Christ upon the cross call us to repentance, to declare to us forgiveness, and to teach us the way to paradise in your presence. Oh Lord, help us like the criminal to be humble enough to confess our sins, to have the grace to believe in Christ's innocence in his life, and to have faith enough to cry out to be remembered. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust in you. Do by your spirit what we are unable to do for ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.